Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karin Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. In this episode, we will be talking to Kartikeya Singh, the Director of Programs at the Sud Fund, where he manages the portfolio to support energy transition efforts around the world. Mr. Singh is also a non-resident fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program and Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies. In this conversation, we explore the areas in which enhanced collaboration between U.S. and India should occur to help both in their pursuit of a clean energy future. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Mr. Singh. Thank you sincerely for taking the time. Could you please briefly introduce yourself so that listeners can get an understanding of the extent of your involvement in the energy sector and also provide some insight into what got you interested in this space? Sure, and thanks for having me and for including me in the series. I am Karthike Singh, and I am the Director of Programs currently at the SED Fund, a foundation based out of the Netherlands, interested in the energy transition that is unfolding around the world. My PhD is in energy access innovations in India. So I did a lot of field work in rural parts of India, everything from the Sundarbans in the east of India to my home birthplace state of Rajasthan and up in the foothills of the Himalayas and Uttarakhand, right down to southern India to collect data on all the interesting firms that were emerging to provide electricity access to parts of rural India that were lacking access to electricity for decades. And, um, you know, thanks to the dropping costs of solar and new and improved technologies, there was a lot of tremendous business innovation that was happening. So I I got tremendous insights into how firms innovate um, and how they scale up to provide services, energy access services for rural India. I was also fortunate to work at the U.S. Department of Energy to help manage the U.S.-India bilateral energy portfolio, which, as you know, is a sort of whole of government complex undertaking, you know, everything from R&D to managing a strategic energy dialogue the two countries have with various different working groups. I think it was seven working groups at the time that I was at DOE in 2015-2016 and left DOE to be able to work on a State Department-funded initiative that was launched in 2016 when President Obama and Prime Minister Modi met in, in Washington to facilitate subnational energy ties. And that really turbocharged my understanding of um, you know, India's energy issues and her priorities because I was tasked to find out what the energy priorities were of Indian states and met with officials from the power sector across 19 of India's states, tried to then take what I learned about their priorities to matchmake and find interesting partners 
BBA advisors or practitioners or those in the commercial space. So we're talking about research universities in the U.S., their peers, so energy officials from U.S. states, and of course, firms coming up with interesting new technologies for the power sector to plug them into India and help facilitate partnerships for India's energy transition for the states. A very interesting, I think, understanding of the different levers of energy stakeholders and decision-making in my journey on India. And I've been engaged on sort of India energy and climate space more broadly for a longer time, having launched the Indian Youth Climate Network back in 2008 with a bunch of young climate activists. And that was quite an undertaking in itself, having chapters in 13 Indian states and trying to socialize the importance of what is climate change and how to build and be part of a green economy in India for what is largely a young population. And I think that matters today more than ever, because India is still a very young population. And I think there's still a lot of opportunity for young people to get involved in creating a green economy for India. Agreed. I think I saw the average age of the Indian population today is only around like 29 years old. And yeah, that's honestly why I came up with the idea of creating this series is to be able to share about all of the, in my mind, pretty impressive work that is being done in the clean energy space in India with the younger population. What led you to creating that youth initiative back in, I think you said 2008? Uh, yeah, I bet. I, I don't know if that was part of the background that you found on me at all, but I went to India after college on a one-year sort of visiting mentor fellowship. I was parked at the Center for Science and Environment in New Delhi, a prominent think tank. Sunita Narayan was my mentor, and I thought I was going to go to India to fix India's climate change and energy policy problems, how naive I was. And Sunita Narayan, of course, set me straight and said, if you want to talk climate in India, talk, you know, energy access, energy poverty. And that's actually what got me a little bit started on doing door-to-door surveys in villages and how people were interacting with decentralized renewable energy technologies of various kinds, everything from clean cook stoves to microhydro to biogas to solar home lighting systems that the likes of Selco were deploying. And around that time in 2007 was going to be the biggest climate summit to have happened in a while in Bali, Indonesia where the post-Kyoto framework was going to be finally talked about. You know, the Kyoto Protocol, the US, Canada, several countries were not a party to, Australia as well. So the need for sort of another framework, you know, another sort of protocol or agreement that more nations could, could adhere to. And the only way I could find an avenue to attend the conference was through a small nonprofit based out of the US called Sustain Us. It's the US Youth Network for Sustainable Development. So we were accredited by the UNFCCC to attend. We submitted policy proposals, just like any other NGO that you might think of, the WRIs, the WWFs, the Greenpeace's, the the Brookings, whoever is going, uh, you know, likes to submit their own sort of policy proposals for consideration. And I got through them accredited to attend. But on the sidelines, I witnessed that there was this whole movement of young people trying to get a seat at the table because climate change is a conversation also about intergenerational equity. And I realized that I was the only youth from India present at the time. There were youth from U.S., Canada, and by that I mean citizens. So at that time, I was still uh, you know, an Indian citizen, and there were youth from all over Asia, but not from India, and decided to go back for my fellowship, remaining fellowship time 
to address this. And I, and I should add that what really kickstarted this, I was really energized by the youth movement on the sidelines, but I introduced myself to an Indian government official at the time. And he, perhaps jokingly, but perhaps slightly seriously, and maybe this is a cultural issue, said that youth should have the same view as their elders. And that was something that was really difficult for me to swallow given that I had been brought up also in the U.S. as a first-generation immigrant for a majority of my life. And I said, okay, well, I need to go back to India and maybe not focus so much on energy access, but actually focus on building a youth movement that gets young people talking about this climate issue and to understand how they can participate, like how, like, how does India participate? And so, yeah, I went back and ditched the energy access work for a while and ended up sort of harmlessly creating something called keywords, Indian Youth Climate Network, which at that time got it a lot of attention. And it was an interesting exercise in, in navigating, you know, how to set up an institution in India, how to fundraise, how to all the workings of nonprofit management and designing, you know, what is our role? Do we just basically activate a network of campus groups that care about sustainability issues on their campuses, which is what we did? We also led the first ever youth delegation to the climate negotiation the following year in Poznan, Poland. And perhaps the most dramatic and sort of eye-catching thing that we did was a electric car journey from Chennai to New Delhi over 40 days. And this at the time was an electric vehicle called the Reva, which you may have heard of because it was soon after, after our road tour, thanks to probably great marketing success of our tour, acquired by Mahindra. But this was an indigenously manufactured electric car that had been made in India and exported to, I think, some 90-odd countries. So India, this is pre-Tesla. India was already making electric vehicles. And we wanted to basically cross the country in this indigenously manufactured lithium-ion battery prototype vehicles that Reva gave us three of. Chetan Mani, who's the founder and CEO of of Reva and now has his own separate firm, trusted us, a a band of youngsters with these three vehicles to drive it across the country, which by the way, at that time, 400 million Indian people did not have access to reliable electricity access. So you can imagine driving 3,500 kilometers across the country would have been quite an undertaking. And indeed it was. And we had a solar powered rock band from upstate New York with us singing Bollywood songs. We had trainings for business roundtables with firms like Infosys and Wipro. We went into villages. We did, again, college campus sort of workshops on sustainability, climate leadership trainings, we called them. So it was like a traveling circus, trying to demonstrate, create, communicate, and celebrate the solutions to climate change. It was called the Climate Solutions Road Tour. And that kind of helped solidify the Indian Youth Climate Network and its identity in India. So it was trying to, it was what I call vertically integrated activism, doing the stuff with the grassroots, doing stuff like actually energy access work that some of the college groups were doing, doing international policy work to be able to have a seat at the table and be taken seriously by government. I mean, I'll never forget it. It was like a very hands-on training in, in nonprofit management, in climate activism, in institution building, um, in kind of early stage technology piloting, right? Like driving an electric car in a country that distance. It was, I think it was a world record at that point and prior to Tesla. So very cool. Yeah, very cool. That's exactly what I was thinking. That seems like a really interesting experience. So when you drive these electric cars across India, where would you charge them? I imagine like back then, the electric vehicle infrastructure is probably like very minimal. It was very minimal. And we had um, to do a recce, a reconnaissance sort of mission in advance. We knew that the vehicles could maybe travel up to 120 to 200 kilometers. 
I think we were told they could go a certain kilometer per full charge. And then we realized like right before the tour started in Chennai that it was actually not as high as promised or like we shouldn't go as high <laughs> as it could because we might do like a deep drain situation on the battery and it would be problematic. So every 120 kilometers, we had to stop to charge. So in advance of the trip, you know, I did a road tour in a conventional vehicle from Bangalore to Hyderabad and then Hyderabad to Pune. To, that was the sort of dark spot on the map of trying to figure out where every 120 kilometers could we possibly stop to actually charge these vehicles. And, you know, one of the more interesting places was a petrol station where I stopped in a place, saw a petrol station approached the manager. He must have owned the land, the farm that existed there and had decided to be a franchise owner of Indian Oil and have a petrol station. And I asked him, two months from now, a bunch of people will come in something called an electric car. They need this particular style of this particular charge or voltage plug point to plug in their vehicles. And you know, it was all very abstract. And I was like, do you have this? And he took me to the back of the petrol station where there was a shed and there was a sugarcane pressing or cutting machine No, that was electric. And he showed me the socket and I was like, yes, this is what I need. Um, And so like that became, that became a a scheduled stop on our very carefully crafted road tour. And so it was stops like that, that we had to do to make this happen. Cause we didn't, we didn't run out of charge at all at that time. We even had to like cut the cord and like, you know, make it function, you know, in one case at a particular hotel where we stayed to make sure that we could get enough voltage out of a socket. I mean, maybe the socket was the problem, not the voltage. And yeah, we managed to make it work, but it it required a lot of pre-planning, a lot of teams of the Indian Youth Climate Network in cities to organize events around our arrival. Like here are the local solutions to climate change that you should document, which were then put onto a website. Here are the sort of we're going to engage the business community for a roundtable. We're going to do a workshop at a college campus. We're going to meet the mayor of the city. Like all of that had to be pre-planned by the local IYCM chapters. Do you see electric vehicles as a central technology in the transport sector in India to the same level as other maybe more developed countries over time? Yeah, we were very mindful of our road tour messaging. First of all, we're coming in four-wheeled private vehicles, electric vehicles. A climate solution is not for everyone to have a car. Ideally, in a climate solutions tour, it would have been the Indian railways that we would have engaged with. And that was part two of our plan, which never materialized. There's a couple of lessons that I have learned from that, which is, A, India has the minds and the technological know-how to be able to generate hard and soft technologies, hardware and software to meet the climate crisis. And if that means electrifying transport, that India has demonstrated it, right? I said that this vehicle was already being exported by Reva to many, many countries prior to the arrival of Tesla and was later acquired by Mahindra, which is a big Indian auto conglomerate. And so the know-how for owning the innovation, electrified transport exists in India. And I think the government is putting forth money into the space increasingly now. We've seen that. There's, of course, a lot of focus on enabling ecosystem through charging infrastructure, which will need to be in place and bulk procurement of vehicles to drive the market demand for it. I think now everybody really wants to own the value chain and manufacture the vehicles. And that's fine, too. I think that will need to happen. And India already has a strong automotive manufacturing industry to be able to make that transition happen. But I think ultimately, 
are electric vehicles and like four wheel electric vehicles the the solution to India? I think it's more just like an electrified India. We are at a point in time where the delivery of services through the electron is finally more powerful and can take you further than the oil and gas molecule. So I think if and India has shown that it can develop large scale renewable energy projects that have showed record low prices, including just today another parcel of the Madhya Pradesh renewable energy parcel of land, the parcel of I think 1500 megawatt renewable energy solar park has reached a remarkable new tariff through its power purchase agreement auction that was just tendered by the government there. So the renewable energy uh, levelized cost of renewable energy is now less than coal in India. It's of course the, it's variable. There's a need for storage, but a clean electron can certainly be used to move people around. And I see tremendous scope for that in two wheelers. I see tremendous scope for that in three wheelers, also in rural areas where there's a lot of need for transportation. And then I think the four wheelers, the prices will come down. And I think the buses are being electrified, and the railways is electrifying. So I think it's not just the vehicles as a solution, but it's part of the electrify everything plan that's got to move for India. And do you see a solid avenue for the U.S. to be able to partner with India, specifically in the electric vehicle space? Yeah, there are a couple different ways to do that. There's already a very credible joint R&D project, the Partnership to Advance Clean Energy Research which had at one point in time four, probably now just three components to it for joint R&D in, in the sort of innovation space. You could certainly add electric vehicle R&D work stream to that. And that's sort of trying to address the R&D side of the question. Then there's sort of institutional innovations and policy innovation support. And then frankly, on that, there's stuff even the US could learn from India because India states are at varying levels of progress on developing the electric vehicle policies. For example, Karnataka, which was the first state to come out with an electric vehicle and energy storage policy, wanted to actually set up a battery innovation center, an EV R&D center, to be able to actually, you know, again, be a part of the innovation value chain of the technology and then get a foothold in, in the manufacturing space. So Indiana has a battery innovation center, and both states have a sister state agreement. So that was one of the things that when I was at CSIS, I was trying to say, you know, here's an existing sort of state to state relationship where focus on sort of battery innovation could very much be a part of the conversation and an understanding how Indiana set up that consortium of companies and what sort of incentives it provided and which universities it linked them up to could be a model that Karnataka could perhaps replicate and, and plug into its incredible research university networks but also many of the firms that exist in India. So that's another type of collaboration that I think is incredibly important. And then, you know, through the work that we also facilitated at CSIS between Colorado and Gujarat, I know that there was a lot of knowledge sharing between the two states on how, you know, they set up procurement policies and tariffs that were set. And Gujarat has just come up with its own electric vehicle policy that has in part been informed by Colorado's. And Colorado was very interested in sort of the battery swapping kind of model that was emerging in, in India. So yeah, I think there's lots to be done. And of course, there's software providers that are trying to focus on the charging side of the equation that there are commercial opportunities, I think, in both directions, as both countries try and electrify transport. So yeah, I think there, there could be a very natural relationship on electric vehicle R&D manufacturing and policy design between the two countries. Very interesting. Thank you so much for expanding on that. And 
that experience back in 2008. I wish I could have joined that trip. That seems like the ideal type of experience while I was in India. I would try and travel as much as I could, but I feel like something like that is just super transformational. So definitely a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Mm -hmm. So I know that you worked at the DOE in 2015 to 2016. What were some of the key focus areas of the U.S. engagement during that time with India in the energy space and how you feel like that engagement has sort of evolved over time to maybe current day where now you feel these are the areas where the U.S. can really play an instrumental role in helping India with its clean energy transition. It is one of the key pillars of U.S.-India bilateral ties is is energy cooperation. And then we've seen you know, everything from the civil nuclear agreement, which really kind of kickstarted a lot of the deeper energy cooperation work and, and transformed U.S.-India ties in general, has been a key part of the relationship, the, the energy cooperation bit. So, and it has seen an evolution, right? When India was extremely power deficit, and there was the cheapest source of electricity was going to be coal. There was considerable focus on coal cooperation between the two countries. And I think rightfully, as the sort of changing economics, energy economics and the energy landscape, sort of the technological landscape has shifted. And obviously, the, the, the need to address the climate crisis has also shifted. And as Indian ambition to integrate and, and develop more renewable energy projects has shifted, the U.S. has kind of continued to change its ability, its, its stance and how it engages India on this topic. And so I think when I was at DOE, we had seven different working groups, which were fit for purpose at that time. And, and many of these working groups still exist and have been an important part of the bilateral ties. I'm not dismissing any of them because they are critical. They've all played a critical role in their time. I think there is, at this moment in time, I think need a clear need to focus on where India's energy priorities are, which is to meet an incredibly ambitious renewable energy deployment target and a desire to decarbonize and to make the electric grid more efficient, to make the most economical energy choices, and to capitalize on the fact that one out of every $7, according to the IEA India Energy Outlook scenarios, by 2030, one out of every $7 in the world spent on renewable energy and energy storage technologies is going to be spent on India. So I think what that means is US-India energy ties need to have a focus on making sure that more of the renewable energy value chain is owned by India. And I think it's also in the U.S. interest. So, you know, the Quad, which is a geopolitical alignment between Australia, Japan, India, and the U.S., just talked about creating a working group on critical minerals and supply chains. I think having an immediate working group between U.S. and India on critical mineral supply chain establishment is going to be key to advancing and modernizing U.S.-India energy ties to meet this moment. There used to be, when I was at DOE, a working group on coal, which I understand no longer exists and has now been kind of folded into the power and energy efficiency working group. I would say that, you know, now there's a time to focus on how we like actually transition from coal because there are significant retirements on the anvil in India. There are lots of retirements that have happened on the U.S. side. There are major questions about just transition and how to make sure that people, lives and livelihoods are secured as this transition is happening. We are incredibly fortunate to be living in a time of technological advancement and kind of an ethical and moral 
belief that we need to make sure that nobody is left behind as this transition is made, because entire state economies and communities that are dependent on coal will be impacted as the transition barrels forward. And and I think there's tremendous opportunity to share what's happened or happening in the U.S. and what has happened or happening and, and will happen in India as this transition moves, because so much of India's power does come from coal. It will not always be the case. It may be the case for a little while longer, but the transition is on the horizon. You know, mines are becoming unprofitable, they are closing, and power plants are not meeting emissions norms. So um, I do think that there's a conversation to be had on, on how to successfully transition, successfully, safely, securely, justly. And I think that there needs to be assistance, continued insistence and focus on how utilities can be transformed to operate in this tremendously dynamic time of of managing an energy transition, incorporating innovations at the same time. And that's difficult for them when they're loss-making. So I think continued focus to engage with India's state-owned utilities and enterprises is key. There was a focus on, on gas and the energy ties between the two countries and might continue to be. But I think, and I think this has already happened, one of my recommendations earlier this year was that there needs to be a a new task force focusing on green hydrogen. And this is also an opportunity to create jobs, to help transition large state-owned and private oil and gas companies, the likes of Indian Oil, which is already making inroads and providing pilots and test beds for what a hydrogen-based supply chain could look like and how the firm could play a role in it. We also saw Reliance announcing in the Reliance industry saying they were looking forward to producing green hydrogen. So I think that should very much be the focus moving forward. And this sort of, as I alluded to earlier, like the Indian government spent a lot of money managing to electrify nearly every household, providing infrastructure that connects nearly every home to the national grid or providing off-grid systems. It was the Subhagya initiative, highly successful in meeting this target. Now what needs to happen is demand stimulation. People need to consume electrons to help recuperate these costs. And nothing could meet and check all the boxes of recuperating those costs making utilities fiscally solvent and helping decarbonize India's power grid than an electrify everything kind of initiative. And this is where there is a bit of a mismatch between, you know, a gas-based economy, which India would like to have, and maybe there is some merit in, but really an electricity-based economy, which is something to really capitalize on uh, because the electron is more powerful than the gas molecule in this case in providing certain services. And, you know, the infrastructure is already there, so why not strengthen it? So I think, and, you know, electrification of transport comes under all of this, cooking, household appliances, and then continued focus on on innovation, which I know that will, will continue to sort of happen. You know, there was energy storage and, and smart grids. As I was leaving TOE, that was one of the last things that I had a hand in pushing out. And I think the next natural step is sort of uh, focus on energy storage and electric vehicles, on designing state-based innovation ecosystems to make Indian states more resilient to economic shocks to sort of drive more innovation and job creation that is inherent in how uh, their economies operate. I think there's lots of learning from U.S. states that have done that. And yeah, so I would say like these are kind of the key things that I would focus on in my sort of playbook for where the energy partnership can go. And, And in some cases already has started to go. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of identifying investment opportunities, to help India transition away from coal? A recommendation from your incredible article titled Meeting India's Net Zero Moment was to prepare business transition plans informed by analysis for state-owned enterprises such as Coal India Limited and Indian Railways. Really curious to hear 
what you believe these business transition plans could look like. Could you provide some insight into that? Yeah. You know, I'm a systems level thinker and um, I would say that let's take Indian Railways, for example, right? They generate a lot of revenue from transportation of coal. And tomorrow, if there was no coal, that would be a problem because it would have an impact on their cash flows that would then have a ripple effect on their ability to cross-subsidize transportation access to so many millions who um, currently, you know, rail travel is subsidized for because they can't afford it. So how can we make sure that people still have access to cheap ways of getting around using in railways. Indian Railways has enough money to be a modern transportation network and it's able to generate revenue, new revenue. So I think a business transition plan for Indian Railways would help it sort of figure out how it would manage the, the gradual decline of dependence of revenue from transporting coal to something else. I don't know what that looks like right now. And that's why I'm saying that the business transition plan needs to look at that. Indian Railways holds considerable amounts of land it's doing tremendous work in monetizing railway land, you know, and station redevelopment projects and through public-private partnerships for, for, for station redevelopment across India. What are other things that Indian railways could do to generate revenue that would supplant in a gradual manner declining revenues from coal? Similarly for Coal India, which obviously is its mandate is to, to produce coal. Tomorrow, if it's not digging up more of that rock, um, what is it doing? Can it be doing what it's actually already starting to do, which is quite remarkable, which is providing manufacturing of nuts and wafers and um, solar modules. You know, the, the stuff that India needs more of in-house, in-country for its solar developers who've already perfected the art of structuring and designing solar parks and power purchase agreements that are quite successful. But, you know, they're having to import large amounts of uh, the renewable energy components the technology components. So I think they could be very well making other things and gradually, right? And so it's not going to happen overnight, but from a business perspective, it just makes sense because these are state-owned enterprises, people's pensions depend on it, that that kind of thinking, and I do think it's starting to already happen, which is what's great. So where there's willingness to really turbocharge those efforts, I think people's jobs will be secured, the companies will be part of and brought into the future as the energy transition moves forward rather than just become relics of the past. And I think that's more a risk to something like Coal India than Indian Railways. Obviously, railways are still going to be needed. But like for Coal India, like it could really be the provider of energy still and energy components in the Indian economy just in a different way. Got it. I know we only have a few minutes left and I want to be respectful of your time. So I think I'll just conclude on asking you, which I always ask my guests, but I'm very curious to hear your answer. If you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, just reflecting through the lens of your experience, what your fears were after graduating or what your aspirations were. Yeah, I mean... You only get to be under 30 for so long. <laughs> and I guess one of my fears was the rush to sort of go through grad school and like set my life up and be on a particular sort of firm, economically secure path. And I think taking a little bit of a deviation and ending up sort of running a startup social enterprise was probably high risk. And I am glad I did it. And I think this is probably advice that I gave to young people on college campuses during my time doing that kind of work was that, you know, like take the risk, don't be afraid of failure, think about 
there are so many incredible minds coming out of India's university system every year that go into, for, for very important necessary reasons, you know, go into economically secure opportunities and jobs. But I think sometimes people are really passionate about being in the social sector, but just don't know where to do it or how to do it, or maybe don't have the opportunity, frankly. But like, should that opportunity present itself? I'm glad that I took it and, I'm, and I would encourage others to take it, provided that it's within their means because it can be deeply transformational. And those, as you age, those opportunities to take those risks are limited. So, you know, if somebody is going to present you with prototype electric vehicles to drive across the country, <laughs> part of a traveling circus that you have to organize, my advice would be to do it because it can really be a tremendous insight and show you what you're really capable of even doing. I think there was some hesitancy to take that. And it took the, the convincing of some friends to make me do it. But I, like I said, I am really glad I did. And it sort of, I think, laid the pathway to understanding what India's journey has been in its sort of energy transition and where it can be. Thank you so much, Mr. Singh. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.